0: Thanks for joining us for our third episode of Canine Roll Call Podcast. I am your host, Jason Ferguson, and I'm incredibly happy that you're with us. I'm pretty excited about this episode. Um, we'll get into that in just a second. First, again, our co-host, Shayna Parsnow. Say hello. Hello. And we've also got Amber Vaughn back with us um, for this particular episode. This, uh, ladies and gentlemen, might be a long one, uh, but again, we're excited, and if we need to piece it up, we will. So um, we're incredibly excited to have our guest on today, um, someone I've known for quite some time, uh, mm-hmm. Dr. David Adabimpe um, is here with us, and we're going to talk all things odor um, on this particular episode. So uh, incredibly educational, Um we're happy to have David with us. this is his first podcast you've been on right yes, and yes. today's his birthday yabba do. So, um it's glad to have we're glad to have him here and glad to have him here on his birthday so um let's start things off david if you will just give us a little bit of um a little bit of background um on sort of how you got started
1: oh Jason um thanks for having me here um well um, I don't really know i think um the situation I, I'm in right now has been a culmination of little different aspects of my life, um, because um, I, init- I initially wanted to be a medical doctor, of course, uh, that's what my parents wanted me to be, so I started off going to medical school, uh, but I dropped out of medical school because um, a lot of people were failing biochemistry and I wanted to know more about biochemistry because it seemed to be more challenging and medicine. So, I went there and um, took the biochemistry route, um, getting a master's in enzymology. And then, um, whilst doing biochem, I realized people were flunking out because of organic chemistry. And I I wanted to know more about organic chemistry, so I got a PhD at, from organic chemistry. Um, well, broad line... Um, with my with my educational experience, I'm experienced in biochemistry, enzymology, synthetic organic chemistry, analytical chemistry, physical chemistry, uh, material science. And then I did a postdoc in nanotechnology, which um kind of um embodied um, everything. Um during my the final part of one of the PhDs I got, um, it, um I started getting interested in a new nanotechnology subject called gas sensing and um, within this area um, we were working on electronic noses so um for probably eight years before 911 happened um, I was in the electronic nose um technologies, uh, making electronic noses for gas sensors. So um, that's how I really got introduced to odor um, through the fabrication of um, electronic noses and gas sensing. And I did that in, in the UK. And uh, when I came to the United States, uh, I also continued my postdoc at the University of Pennsylvania under Alan McDermott, who invented... Um, conducting polymer technology, and um, I became his group leader and um, were working in this area. So gas sensing was an area in which I was working in um, before 9-11 happened.
0: You're talking gas sensing. I just want to be clear. So you're you're talking specifically you were looking to develop the technology to create a machine that would replace it all. Yeah. Kind of. So that's kind of, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's sort of how you started.
1: Yeah, um, not re- I, I never really thought about it as replacing a dog per se. Um, I, I mean, then, back then, I never even thought about dogs. But it would be to put them in airplanes, um, to put them in theaters, um, to put them in entryways, and then hopefully they'll be sens- sensitive enough to pick up the odor of someone that might be carrying um, an explosive. And why are you not doing that today? Well, 9-11 happened. Um, I, well, I was doing that, and I was quite good at it. Uh, my mentor uh, back then at the University of Pennsylvania, I, got on, I, I went on. Um, my mentor won the Nobel Prize in chemistry, and that gave me a kind of a free ticket to, to do a lot of things. Um, I ended up taking up an academic position Um, at the City University of New York City College and uh, was also the administrator of a National Science Foundation Center of Excellence. Life was good for me and um, I was working on gas sensors um, at that point. Then 9-11 happened. And um, 9-11 changed my life. And then I I, um, started um, walking around the halls of... um, I lost friends during 9-11, and um, I wanted to to kind of retaliate, revenge, whatever it might be then, in my younger days. I said, um, I moved, I went down to D.C. and started knocking down on the doors of um, government agencies, trying to introduce myself and telling them um, about the capabilities that I have to offer. And... Um, Later on, I got a call from the U.S. Marine Corps. Um, They had problems with dogs downrange because the dogs that they trained so well, that had certified numerous times, they went downrange and started acting like fools. They were missing explosives, and nobody could understand what the heck was going on. And unfortunately for us, we couldn't take our MN01 kit with us. We couldn't take our canine detection scent kit with us because they were real explosives. So the only thing people don't really realize we could train all the heck we want here, but if we have a war situation, we can't take those real train aids with us. And the dogs were messing up a lot, and um, that's when I was called in to see if I was if I could replicate the MN01 kit, the canine scent kit. And uh, that was my first introduction to working dogs. You know, when I was younger, I had dogs, but I never knew what a working dog was until then. Of course, being, being, being a Brit, you see, we know the Germans used dogs for war, to eat people up. The first line of attack were dogs. I knew that, but not for detection. So, um, yeah, that was my first introduction to the United States Marine Corps through Masok in particular, they introduced me to 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 walking dogs and the situation they had. And since I had um, experience in odor anyway, in, in gases, I thought it would be an easy challenge to 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 pick up on. Twenty years later, we're just finishing it up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Rome wasn't built in a day, right? Yes, but I was so young and I'd never had to work on years on anything before, <laughs> you know. So, but this one was different and took a, a nice chunk of what people call the best times of one's life, you know. But um, I think it's not the best times of one's life. It's just the most. Um, it's just a time of one's life that one probably has the strength and the focus to get things done. Challenges like this done. So, yeah.
0: So I'm starting with a big question here.
1: Um, What is odor? Well, to put it simply, I would say odor is the essence of a material. Um, There's a big difference between odor and vapor. You know, vapor is when the material is converted into gas. Like me saying, I'll vaporize you. I'll turn you into nothing. But odor is the essence of that material without that material being vaporized. You know, the material still being there. So what is the essence of that odor? What, that is what I call um, odor. Um, well, Jason, you and I, we've known ourselves now for over a decade. And you know that odor is a word that we've always advocated back in the days, and uh, you and I, I must say. um, But then it was called pseudo. Because anything that wasn't material-based was called pseudo. It's either real or pseudo. But now, I think now we could say what was called pseudo before is now called odour. Even though we have some fractions trying to say there's a definition, there's a difference between what used to be called pseudo, which the real word then was pseudoscent, which they didn't finish. The Latin word is pseudoscent, um, but then they shortened it to pseudo, but now they call it odor. I want to say pseudo is different from odor, but odor is the essence of a material. What What comes out of a material? What's the material is there? Um, within the context of that word being used, odor, when you look at the odor of any material at all, you'd find out that it comprises of what we call odorants. And um, you've, I, c- I can count on one hand um, the number of materials in which the material itself is within its odor. You know, so odor has nothing to do with the material itself. They're different. You don't have little Davids coming out of David to represent David's odor, and you did, don't have little flying carpets flying out of a new carpet for carpet's odor, and um, that's how odor is. It's and you a,
0: don't and you don't have cocaine flying out of cocaine. You
1: don't have cocaine flying out of cocaine. You don't have you do, because there's no cocaine in cocaine odor. There's no RDX in C4 odor. So these things are different they are different they, they they are they they are different tensors for different senses to use and you cannot you you cannot use the eyes to make decisions for the nose so the the, 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 the there is a strong difference between material and odor and then odor within itself because Odor is different from the material. It's a different entity that needs to be studied and not assumed.
0: Yeah, and I, and I think traditionally in the industry, um, handlers, trainers um, have looked at a material and its odor as one and the same. It, it's, it's the same thing. And I think that separation between those two uh, is incredibly important for us to understand how dogs are capable of finding the material by using the odor.
1: Well, I'll say when I came into your world, people didn't think about odor at all. People were not talking about The real was not odor. The real was the material. Um, a lot of programs, were, a lot of um, um, procedures were, were, were set up with the assumption that it's the material the dog was detecting. You know, not the materials odor. Even up until now, nobody speaks about, people speak about odor. But, I mean, how many components are in the odor of cocaine? Not one, and not cocaine. How many components are in the odor of uh, c 4 Not one, and not RDX. But then who knows what they are? Who cares what they are? when these are the things that we should really be learning and studying because these are the elements that really help our programs. That's our real, real, not the material itself. I mean, what we now call a training aid is actually a training aid producer, not the training aid itself. But we need to get over calling what we call real now, real, because it's a real producer, not real. And that's a fundamental um, adjustment that I think um, the community is making now. Uh, they are transitioning from calling the material real to calling the odor real because scientists now are beginning to get involved and also beginning to understand more via using experiments um, that odor really is also more important. So, yeah.
0: So, it, it's... They're has seemed to have been some shift in the industry. Yeah, it's taken a long time, it's been a real slow process. It's been slow. Uh, I'm impatient, so it's been, <laughs> me too. It's been, too, been too slow for me. Obviously, that's why we
1: kept on making training aids <laughs> and hoping that later on scientists will catch up with us and understand what we're doing. Uh, but now they kind of are, but some of them, unfortunately, are still trying to qualify us as pseudo and say what they're doing is older, whereas this is something that we've now had 20 years of experiencing at Logics, something we've been teaching for over 12 years, 14 years at Logics. you know. So it's exciting now that at least now we could get validated by scientists uh, because now they're on our wavelength. And even the community now is now getting to be on our wavelength. So we... It's exciting times for us because now hopefully a lot of people concentrate on what we have to say. Um, and um, whatever we've had to say, we've proven it through dogs for for, for nearly 20 years, you know. So, um, yeah, exciting times now.
0: So there is still this uh, section of the community or the industry who will go to the grave clinging to... real material why do you why do you think that is why do you think they're so entrenched in this belief that you can't train a drug dog unless you're using real material and you can't train a bomb dog unless you're using real material
1: um it's an i call it unfortunate imprintation you know and um, probably cognitive dissonance you know um in the sense that um a lot of them have done it for so long that they think they're too old to start something new, you know. And, of course, there are so those that don't believe in it because, I mean, they love their mentor and they stick to what they've been out of obedience and out of being good people, you know, loyalties. Um, they've stuck to the, to, to the old school knowledge. However, I think um, logic should be a good reason for people to change their minds. And um when when things are worded appropriately I'm being told, look, a dog doesn't find cocaine. A dog finds the source of cocaine odor as you understand that odor to be. And as you've presented it through your dog to your dog with the kind of containment that you've used to put it in. You know, um I don't think uh, that shouldn't make sense to anybody at all in the field um, uh, within the community, and um, if they don't even believe in it, I believe they should it should it should bring up enough inspiration for them to go back home and give it a shot and think about it um very, very well. It's unfortunate though that um those people um exist um, however, you know we want we want our kids to be better than us so now if there's now a generation of um of of practitioners that now see things otherwise i think um they are the ones to inherit that the 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 predecessors um knowledge and capabilities so i think with all the generations that have gone at past that people stuck to um institutionalized misinformation i think uh, this new generation um I see a lot more people changing their minds and doing that, and although well, the old school gonna
0: which is which is refreshing, but yeah, very uh, refreshing I attribute so I tri- personally i I got a little different experience than you, and I, I think I attribute some of it to comfort. Mm. Some of the guys who've been around a long time who've who've done things a certain way, they're just they're incredibly comfortable with the system that they're using. And they're consistent with their understanding of the outcome. I think that that outcome, what to expect from the dog when doing it this way. Uh and and that creates a situation where they're far less likely to explore something new, despite what's being said about it. Uh and, and I think that creates a situation where they're incredibly entrenched as well. Hmm. Yeah. This is this is what I know. This is how I know it. <laughs> and I know what I can expect from doing it. This from way. doing it this way, and as a result, I'm not incredibly interested in looking at anything something else, something new, because now, you know, and I'm not saying this me. I'm, I'm saying this as as the way some pe- I see some people looking at it, right? So I've been doing it this way for 20 years. I've been doing it this way for 30 years. I've been doing it this way for 40 years. You know, and mm. and and the and the, the likelihood for change is, um, minimal, and I think part of the reason why is because, you know, I've got this 20, 30 years experience doing it my way or this way or whatever way. And if I begin to explore a new way of doing it, now I put myself in a jeopardy. In a position of vulnerability. Yeah. Right? I'm I'm somehow the new guy on the block because I'm just now learning. That is very true. Th- I have
1: to go back to the to the back of the line now. I was in the front of the line now. I will have to go back because I'm learning something new. I'm a student again. Yeah. And that is not
0: a, um, in my experience, that is not something a lot of people in the industry are willing to do. Mm. They're not willing to go to the back of the line. That's very true. You know, they want to they hold tight to this position, this level of comfort, this, I've been doing it this way and it's been working, you know, and, and I I think that's incredibly important because it does work. Yeah. Using, using, using these older methodologies, these older systems, these, these, you know, what I would consider to be antiquated, uh, practices with, you know, some of these real training aids, does it work? Yeah, absolutely it works. I won't argue that it works. I don't think
1: you would argue that it works. No, I don't, there's no argument it works. But it's not, uh, not the most consistent, effective. Yeah, not repeatable in most instances. And um, one is actually working with nothing because you don't know about. The training aid you say you're using, the TNT, for example, is that how pure is it? How old is it? Uh, what was the scent quality of it? Um, the surface, is it producing enough odor? Or do you need to shave off the surface to expose a new surface so that odor would be there? Or do you want to just turn the TNT block into TNT powder to increase the surface area and probably use a lot less TNT anyway to generate um, the same kind of um, the, the, the required odor? Um, what's the generation rate of odor from this material? You know, um, like we say, we've not really, we're getting there. Obviously, now we're using the right name, Odor. That's a good start. And I think the next thing will be, what is Odor? What are the components of Odor? Wow. If you're telling me there's no cocaine in cocaine Odor, then what the heck is it then? Tell me. Teach me. Show me. Um, I'm excited when this t- for these times to come. Because that is the only time I believe that practitioners would, number one, earn the name of practitioner. I've been calling practitioners practitioners forever. Actually, I think I started that name practitioner when I came into your community and saw the science involved, uh, not just the behavioral science, uh, uh, the physical sciences involved. I had so much respect. Um, so much, so much respect for what you guys were doing, and with with a name that wasn't befitting. Because with a name handler, dog handler, I mean, why should I pay more than twelve dollars an hour for such a name? It sounds like dog handler. My son could do that, you know. But scent practitioner, oh, a practitioner. It's a. Um, I'm an Englishman, so I mean. M- names matter or professional occupational names matter because it's a reflection of how much you are going to earn you know so um but now i see when 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 the word oh, when there's a lot more emphasis being laid on odor not just on the word odor but the fractals of odor what is it comprised of we, with them within them we've been teaching that for <laughs> over 10 years yeah, i mean nearly 20 years, we stopped teaching the intricate part because we had to dump it, it down. Dumb it down. Dumb it down, David. Dumb it down, David. <laughs> dumb it down, David. But now with Oda being a word, it's now time for David to step it up and start going back to those initial teachings. A little bit. Step it up a little, little bit. bit yeah. um, step it up a little bit, but, but in, in, st- in, st- in, 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 in steps of... Of in a in a in an upward going gradient, you know and hopefully with the help of practitioners like you who've believed in odor for such a long time and who've practiced it for such a long time too, you know it is um I, it is hoped that um the, the 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 joint impacts the impacts would culminate in in, in a lot of awareness and in a lot of knowledge um uh, being being dispersed um within the community and them learning um about um about the truth it's odor shouldn't be new it's the truth about scent detection mm-hmm. I don't know whether I answered the question
0: <laughs> well <laughs> take a minute to sort of explain how odor right you're talking about odor how is yes. odor different for us humans as compared to how dogs see odor, odor, right, or or identify odor, right? We, it seems like we, we still have a lot of people in the community who want to quantify, qualify odor from a visual perspective.
1: Yes, we're still where, doing that a lot. Dogs,
0: dogs have no
1: desire to do it that way. None, none. I think... Um dogs and I um are different in 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 what we use our no- what we use our noses for um the what's an organism's primary sense of, sense of sight the let me first there are three sense there are three main senses of sight no sight eyesight and ear sight those are main senses of sights for humans eyesight is our main sense of sight. What's the main sense of sight? That's the sight that you use to to attend to your primary motives. Um, food, sex, shelter. We use our eyes for food. I mean, look at plates now. Sometimes useless food in restaurants, they just decorate it nice on a plate. Give it a $40 check. Two, two, two asparagus, six ounces of meat, half a slice of tomato, nicely designed on a plate. That's how we, View food now, and we'll pay a top dollar for it. Of course, sex—we look at attributes on a woman. Shelter. Everybody knows the difference between a mansion, a castle, and a and a and, and, and a townhome. <laughs> you know, you know. But um, for dogs, um, the primary sense of sight is the nose. Eleven percent of a dog's genes are olfaction—a whole eleven percent. For food, the dog uses the nose. For sex, the dog uses smells the females. Oh God, you'll be ready in a week. I know which neighborhood to come to. You know, shelter, they use the nose too. They mark areas that be- they believe it's their own. They mark areas that they want to claim. You know, they smell, they pee there, they mark, and they move on. So there's a and some physiologists would say that the primary sense of an organism gives the organ's organism a visual. Now, if that is true, that means there's a visual component to olfaction for those for which olfaction is a primary sense of sight. Like dogs. Probably insects too. You know, so just that thought alone Make things fascinating, and um, now we've been looking at the neurobiology um, of um, of odor. Um, we've done a lot of work now on how the nose works, and we believe that we've cracked it. But then the next question is, where do the nerves of the nose go to in the brain? Because that would be that would give us a better understanding. Because I personally believe that dogs that with no sight there's a visual perception that's involved in it. Now, we, we, we've established now that we see things different. Our, nose sight, our own perception of no sight is different from a dog's because the nose is a dog's primary sense of sight, whereas the eyes is our primary sense of sight. Primary senses of sight give a vision. Now, how does the nose then work? For that Well, you guys taught me when I came into your world that when a human smells a hamburger, he smells a hamburger. but then when a dog smells a hamburger, he smells the buns, he smells the pickle, he smells the onions, he smells the meat, he smells the ketchup. Well, over years, I would say, yes, you are right. You are absolutely true. I mean, with that statement now. But then, the question that I always ask the, 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 the practitioner is that, then how good is your hamburger that you're using the train? Does he have a pickle in it? Does he have meat? Do, does he have two buns slapped on either side?
0: Is it one of those bullshit beyond meat burgers?
1: Yeah, how <laughs> oh, is it? Because, unfortunately, they don't know. Less than less than one percent of practitioners know how their hamburger is. They just know it's a hamburger. It's real. But is he an old is there a moldy hamburger?
0: From ten years ago?
1: From ten years ago. They don't know. And unfortunately, what pains me the most is that they don't care. They don't care about the essential thing they need to care about to make themselves a lot better, to make themselves being able to serve me better as I'm serving them. You know, and um, that's the present challenge now, the education of the 21st century practitioner, um, in scent practitioner, in scent detection, f- f- really covering odor as it should be covered, as it should be known and taught. To the twenty first century, scent practitioner.
0: Yeah, yeah. You, t- you sort of touched on: Do they know what they're using? And and I think they don't. That's, uh, yeah, but I think that's incredibly important and incredibly important oversight because you know we oftentimes hear people. Uh, Shana gets it a lot, right? On on dog selection, right? Everybody calling us wants the same thing. They want the biggest, most badass dog we got. Right? So we so we just imported 20 dogs. First person that calls, what do they want? Best thing you got. Right? They gotta have the the absolute best dog that's out there. Well, you know, that's what everybody's looking for. Yeah. Everybody's looking for that best dog. And and they wanna they wanna buy that dog and they wanna take it home and train it. Well, if we start with the absolute best dog and then Mm. we take it home. And we begin to use a process or methodology that's, that's just you know out of this world for, for developing detection dogs. But we've got absolute garbage for a training aid. Yeah. What is our at this point, you know when we look at this equation, what is our opportunity to develop a highly skilled detection dog that is going to be efficient in an operational environment? We started with the best dog, dog that yeah. was out there, right? So, and, 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 the and, best what, tra- and the best trainer, too. Yeah, best dog, best trainer, trainer, best system, best methodology, all the best practices. But a messed up training aid. But a bad training aid. You know, and I think, yeah. I think that's, a, a, again, a big thing in the industry that gets overlooked um, is, is, again, as you said, people don't understand what they have as a training aid.
1: Yeah, well, I could tell you what could happen when you have a great trainer, A great a well-selected dog and a shitty training aid, you end up getting a shitty dog and a more shitty working dog team. By the time you add a shitty shitty dog to a trainer, if the trainer it's as to a handler practitioner, the handler practitioner mightn't like the dog or have an inferiority complex knowing that my dog misses and my dog doesn't find hard. So you end up having I'm sorry to say, a fucked up team.
2: Yeah, I feel like we see that a lot, especially with um, like newer handlers coming in, maybe never handled a dog before, and they almost have its ability to find odor like tied to their ego and then working it without having any understanding of the science behind what the dog is doing, what the dog has learned or what they're setting up to have the dog continue to learn yeah. as they're putting out training aids
1: um, unfortunately for such practitioners i feel sorry for them because um deep down in them, the, deep down within them i know they have this c- complex because they know between them that they are not capable of doing what we tell them to do that even some of us can't do which is trust your dog yep you know we like saying that alone oh, trust your dog trust your dog but it's hard to trust a dog that misses it's hard to trust a dog that you've seen falter. You know, so we don't really the, the these um practitioners don't really get the confidence that they could get by having a really good dog. A trustworthy dog. A trustworthy dog. We need to
0: build you know, we need we as an industry need to work harder to build trustworthy dogs. Oh, yeah. If we want to bring in handlers, new or yeah. old. And and you know, you say what you want to. Cops are Really skeptical people to start with, right? Yeah. I man. that's why they're good at what they do. Yeah. And now we're going to say, hey, trust this thing. Trust to this. Go find things that you can't see. And, and you, you know, in order to do that, in order to build that early confidence in in that relationship, we need to build dogs that are far more trustworthy than what I think has been cranked out over the last 20 years. Oh, yeah.
1: It's, it's like, um, I believe... Um you got a race car driver that's undergone independent training in another place and then you bring the race car driver to your own facility and you give him a Volkswagen Beetle. I mean, no matter how good he is as a race car driver. He's he going to have limits. He's going to have limits. A lot of limits. Space limits, speed limits, performance limits, how fast it is that you could go around the turn limits. You know, And that's how it is when you, when you give a good um, handler practitioner a mediocre dog about you you bring you not only bring down the performance um spectrum of that practitioner but also the mind the mental mindset of that practitioner because that practitioner would know it. he's got an inferior dog he's gonna be looking enviably at higher performing teams he's not gonna win in he's not gonna win in 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 competitions might have to do research must do to a second chance in order to certify and there's been nothing there's nothing wrong with anything at all except for the training aid however when you call a training aid real that means you you absorb it from any questioning that it might be the problem and what do people typically do they blame the trainer or the, or the dog. Or, they'll, <laughs> or they'll, they'll blame the, the dog. They'll, or they'll blame the dog. I
0: can tell you where the blame's likely not to go.
2: <laughs> where the problem is. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah.
0: Sometimes where the problem
1: is, yeah. In, in my own experience, 90% of the time, it's the training aid. 90% of the time.
0: Yeah, which sort of leads me to, to sort of my next point or question. And, and, you know, I think everybody could have a little input on this one. And, and that is, you know, what are people taking the time to change, modify, or fix with their dog or with their training or with their process that's created solely as a result of using a bad
1: training aid? You want me to answer that? Sure. (sighs) A lot. First of all, I would pull from instances to show you how far a bad training they could go. Um I think about a month ago hits um the podcast hits they had a presentation on um a gentleman came up a Leo. I think the name the the topic was fentanyl too. And he spoke about a situation where a dog that has never well, they they they, they had a great find. They had a huge a large load find. And um they thought it was going to be meth because they trained their dogs on, on meth. Or so they thought it was MDMA because they trained their dogs on MDMA, coke, marijuana, and that. But then when they tested it, it was pure fentanyl. Now, how could a dog that's never been trained on fentanyl alert on pure fentanyl? Now, it's simply because the training aids they've been using have been laced with fentanyl. Now, because it's fentanyl, we're excited. But let's assume that fentanyl could be any other impurity within that material. So, now what that podcast is actually saying, it's confirming what we've been actually saying that sometimes your training aid could be so impure that when you use that impure training aid consistently, your dog would start alerting on pure versions of the impurity itself.
0: So the dog self-imprinting?
1: Self-imprinting. Um, no, not really self-imprinting because we've been rewarding the dog on it.
0: Right, but yeah. through that reinforcement. Yeah. There, we've been reinforcing the dogs on it. There's, I'm using the term self-imprinting because they are they are making the association yes. with the impurity.
1: And we, we are telling them it's okay because we're not proving them of it. We're not proving them off because we don't even know what the heck is in it. You know, we just, we, 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 we take cocaine, we put it in a field test kit, it turns blue. We're like, okay, we're good with that. It's cocaine. But how pure? Or is it cocaine? even cocaine? It, Cocaine's the, not the only thing that'll make those things change. Nope. Most alkaloids would. Yeah, Not only cocaine, you know, but nobody checks, nobody cares. So nobody knows the odor. And that's where, again, we come to odor. You know we're still very visual. I'm well, not visual because that's a, we, we we use our eyes still to make perceptions for the nose. Now, so here we have a situation where uh, 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 an impure training aid could make a dog know the impurities to the extent that the dogs would only would start alerting on pure quantities of the impurities themselves that's one danger now another danger i see is from what um, we've actually talked about before in the past and um, we call it the hair anomaly um, which people could um, go online and google the hair anomaly h-a-r-e anomaly and see what's that about Um, it's about a famous practitioner that has never been able to get his dog to alert on certain logics. And um, that could happen. We call it the um, an anomaly because he's he he actually did a beautiful set of experiments to show that this situation exists. You know, but what causes that? It means that your training aid could be so impure that. It it will become impossible for your dogs to know pure versions of the target. That is why some dogs walk send logics. Any dog that walks in logics does not know parent odor because it is parent odor. So whereas some people that, that walk it, it doesn't mean that they've not imprinted well, but it means they've been they've imprinted with, with a bad training aid, so those are the two effects that using uh, a bad training aid—I mean, an impure training aid—could um, do. It could make your dog alert on all on all those impurities in there in their pure versions, or it could make your dog walk pure versions of your targets as your dog seeks for those impurities within it, and it's not there, and none are there. It will walk it. But uh, yeah, it's a,
0: it's important to understand those impurities. But I think too, it's just as important with a lot of the tra- training aids that are being used. What's the likelihood that the training aid is so old and has been utilized and stored in such a way that it no longer contains any or uh, many yeah. of the components well, the that should be available in the headspace for that
1: particular target? Fantastic. That happens. That happens as um, that happens. Uh, I mean, it happens frequency with with, with explosives detection. Where you have solid materials and their surface has oxidized, because odor only comes from the surface of a material. For explosives, for example, a lot of explosives, they need to be melted or cast to maintain the rigidity of, a, of an explosive shockwave. You don't make powders explosives. you got to compress them and then you know so w- when you have such, such rigidity is important.
0: Training aids that are out there that people are using. Not only for maintenance aids, but they're using them to imprint dogs on. We're yeah. trying to teach fluency on an odor with a training aid that is incredibly limited in the
1: components of the
0: headspace yeah, that material is yeah. supposed to produce, or it's producing really
1: nothing. A lot of um, a lot of materials don't have the the odor composition that they should have that would represent a good training aid. Um, We've checked a lot of um, materials back in the days, um, a lot of our military working dog explosives and stuff like that that I had, that I had access to back in the days. And um, for a lot of them, their odor qualities are abysmal. Um, that's what's made me work harder when I realized that our country needed help. They needed help with odors. It it actually inspired me to really make sure that they had a replacement um, or a or, or substitute that they could use that was of better quality odor wise odoriferously than um, what we're using. Um abysmal we
0: what is it, what does abysmal look like? Less than fifty percent, less than twenty percent odor production?
1: Like some odor com- availability? Some odor components not being there at all. Because the surface of the material is so old that odor is not coming out anymore. The surface oxidized. The odor could come from the material that's inside, but the outside the odor only comes from the from the from the surface, so they don't try to shave these materials, like to like like when a when a metal rusts, you you file it down to new to new metal, for that to rust again, you know. Um, they, they could shave materials down to expose new surfaces. Um, they could turn bricks into powders. Like C4, for example, I mean white trim with a pound by weight when you could cut 10 slices out of it, and each slice would represent the original one pound that you had there in the first case, you know, surface area wise increase surface they increase surface area, you know so um these are the a lot of things like that um, they need to do, and the fact that they're not doing it means to me that they've not they're not really focusing on odor yet. When you start focusing in odor, you would know surface area is important. You know, when you're focusing on odor, you would know the 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 characteristics of the odor producer becomes important. When you're when what when, that's when some when someone brings you a material, oh I got TNT to play with. Then you look at it, you say, can we take the wrapper off? Because with the wrapper on, we're not getting good odor. <laughs> <laughs> You know how old is it um have you tested it to make sure it's tnt you know does this tnt have any occluded impurities or any solvent from the manufacturing site you know because what we call real now is the real producer and we need to understand that that's something you have been teaching for over a decade i know that you know people still cannot put it into their medulla or blank that that's our real. Odor is our real. Um, I'm excited that after 20 years, that the community is now looking at that, a little bit focusing on it. And some people have started talking about it, even though they might not, even um, um, the, within the social media, even though they don't understand what they're talking about. But the word is out. That odor is important, you know, and I pray that um, a lot, a lot more practitioners would start asking more questions, asking people like you questions about odor, because I know you know, odor, Jason, you know, and um, and just going out there and um, asking other scientists too uh, about odor.
0: Yeah, it's uh, it seems to be a platform. For people to talk about and ask questions uh a much better platform Pla- than we had 10 years ago or even honestly even four or five years ago so um that is that is promising so uh we're gonna take a quick break when we come back we're gonna talk um a little more about um how people can uh do a better job with their existing training aids whatever those may be so
1: okay because we've, we've only uh, spoken now about um what happens to a dog uh, what, what 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 what? How could the training outcomes of a dog be with impure training aids? And we've seen that it inc- it increases the spectrum of detectability of a dog to the extent that the dogs would make a lot of falses.
0: Yeah, and falses are important. They're frustrating, <clears throat> and it's definitely something we want to explore after the break. So be sure to stay with us. We'll be right back.
2: Royal Canin delivers precise nutritional solutions so your dog can perform at their very best level. The individual health of every dog is as unique as they are. However, these health needs are often characteristic of their size, breed, or lifestyle. Each individual recipe is formulated to deliver the exact level of natural antioxidants, vitamins, fiber, prebiotics, and minerals that are essential to your pet's unique health needs. Discover how Royal Canin products can help every pet enjoy its best health possible. To achieve a perfect balance of nutrients for each dog, they rely on an extensive network of canine experts across the globe, including veterinarians, universities, dog professionals, and their own research and development center in France. Royal Canin helps your dogs train and perform at their full potential. To learn more about Royal Canin, visit them on the web at royalcanin.com. Highland Canine Training offers affordable and proven dog training solutions to resolve even the most difficult of dog problems. Founded in 2006, Highland Canine Training also offers quality working dogs to meet the increasingly demanding requirements of today's military and law enforcement agencies. In addition, they offer first-class canine education programs at their school for dog trainers. So far, they've hosted students from over 30 different countries. The School for Dog Trainers offers affordable financing and accepts GI Bill and VA benefits. The Service Dog Training Division at Highland Canine Training develops and trains some of the best service dogs in the industry and offers worldwide delivery. Their commitment to customer service and support continues to set them apart from the competition and makes them a leader in the industry. Visit HighlandK9.com or call 866-200-2207 to learn more and see the difference.
0: And we're back with Dr. David Adebempe talking all things odor, and where we left off was um, we were talking about how people can better whatever training aids they have. Right, so whether somebody's using uh, real materials, whether they're using uh, chemically formulated training aids to produce odor, how, how what are some strategies that can be used? To create better aids, okay.
1: Um, you know, um, I personally believe in odor, and um, that's that's because um, when I came into the community, real training aids were being used, but what I remember was when our dogs got deployed downrange, they couldn't find anything. You know, and not only that we couldn't take our training aids with us. Not only that we couldn't find anything, but we could not even take those training aids that we call real with us. If we ever have a war situation, we will never be able to take real training aids with us. So, and we realized that even these real training aids that we use, they are not multi-regional. They they only work within the regions in which in 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 which they've been the, the dogs have been trained in most countries you train a narco- you train a dog on explosives in the north of that country and you take those dogs even to the south of that country on real explosives the dogs still act funny but when you train these dogs on odor they find all explosives no matter the 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 the, the mode of manufacture of these narcotics and this extends to explosives, narcotics, it extends to bedbugs. You know, it also extends to mold, as, as we found out. It, it also extends to fentanyl, where with the odor, you will find all types of fentanyl. But if you just use one brand of fentanyl, um, you might uh, this, this imprintation might not extend to the dog finding other brands of um, fentanyl. So um, in, with, with, with this knowledge, um, there's very little one can do to using real materials. Although if you use real materials, of course, you would find your targets. But you will not find all targets. And with explosives, you, you are also limited to using these materials within your region. So for me, I would like us to, to, to know more about odour if we know more about odor then these real materials could hopefully be made better and if they're made better then their 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 detectability the training outcomes would be international will have an international effectiveness not just a, a national um, effectiveness now one of the reasons why i believe um Training aids, um, real materials have this problem. It's because they're not classified. They're not standardized. You know, you could say you're imprinting a dog on cocaine, and I could say, yeah, I'm doing the same thing too, Jason. Oh, what a coincidence. Oh, we're going to have dogs soon then. But then I don't ask, how much cocaine are you using for your imprintation? Because if I asked, are you said 2 kilos of 98% pure? and I have DEA cocaine, which equates to 25 grams of unknown age, unknown purity in a plastic bag, I would know the smartest thing for me to do is to start asking if I could come train with you too, with my dogs. But it all all only stops at, oh, you're training on coke, I'm training on coke. That doesn't mean we're going to have the same quality of dogs. In fact, we would not. Because the, 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 the final quality of the dog that we produced will be, an, will be an indication of how good the training aid is. So for those that use real, for it, to be better, for it to be better, they have to understand odor better and know how could this odor be presented to these dogs. And it still remains parent odor, where the training odor is still equivalent to parent odor. When you wrap uh, an, uh, an explosive up in wax paper, I mean, obviously, the parent odor would not be equivalent to training odor. When you put an explosive or narcotic in a metal canister, the training odor would end up being different from the parent odor. When you put um, um, the, the 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 odor uh, the the material um, in a in a um, in a porous but um um odor odor ferrous material the training odor that you eventually get by that combination would be different from parent odor you know um when you absorb odors um into um another material and use that as training like with the modern like use a soak then your training odor is different from and odor so I think odor is the main thing when we start dealing with real materials from the perspective of their odor qualities I think then real can work and with um, with, um, um, with 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 um, odor producers which is what I like to call training aids now with odor producers that are not the real material but um, uh, formulated materials like Senlogix, for instance, you know, or Sigma, for instance. Um, for those ones, too, I think the odor quality um, is also very important. Within those that do synthetics, there are two kinds of thoughts. Um, we we believe in parent odor, that the odor must be a replica of parent odor. And um, that's why logics works so well. Because our our odors, our parent odor, when we say odor, odor is not just one component. There are a multitude of components uh, within the odor of a training aid. The odor of a training aid could actually be called a scent signature because that is what it is. It's a compendium of of setting gases in different ratios, in ratios that are unique to that Uh, material. And I think that's a lot of problems why people have found it quite difficult to replicate scent logics. A lot of people have tried, even scientists in the United States, you know, but it's not about knowing, just knowing what's in it. It's how much of it is in it. Because if you put too little, the odor of a material too little, the the, the scent of a material is different from the odor of a material. You know, scents like for example, um, a lot of um, I talk. I use um indole as an example. Um, indole is the most common component of feces. So when you smell shit, you're actually smelling indole. However, in low concentrations, it smells like jasmine. You know, most odors that I know at low concentrations they smell fruity, they smell sweet, you know. But in high concentrations, they smell totally different. So indole smells like jasmine at low concentrations and it smells like shit at high concentrations. And I've known that forever since I was a teenager as a chemist. But now when I come into your world, I hear things like, um, when you train with small, you can't find large. Of course you can't find large because the odor of large is different from the odor of small. So when you train with small, you are limited to what small amounts of material, which means when you train with scents, because small amounts of materials would only release scents. So when you train with scents, you would find limited surface areas, limit, limited weights of materials. But when you train with odors, you also find you find when you train with small, you find some. When you train with all, uh, large you find all. So when you train with large amounts of odor, copious amounts of odor, you find all targets, irrespective of weight or surface area. That is why we made our training aids to be large, because that's what it takes to find all. So I think whether we're using real targets as odor producers, or whether we're using ordinary... Uh, not ordinary, but chemically formulated materials as odor producers, the most important thing is that the common denominator is odor, you know, and it's that common denominator that these classes of materials, both classes, should be judged by.
0: Yeah, I, I want to I wanna sort of back up on that for, for just a second here because you – talked about um, I think the example you used was maybe c4 with a wrapper on it yes um, and and yeah it's easy to remove that wrapper right and get to the c4 but yes. what about you know and this is something something I've seen time and time and time again and doing work uh, and and some research and looking into things what happens you know when um, that contaminant or containment is an integral part of the target. Uh, and, and the example, the best example I can give you is um, uh, like debt cord, detonation cord, right? Yes. So you, you've got uh, an explosive material Your that's PTN nested inside. inside of a... Um,
1: a plastic.
0: A plastic, right? So yes. polyethylene, basically, uh, tubing. Yes. And what we find, consistently what we find when, when testing explosive detection dog teams is when you... Remove or strip out that PETN from that polyethylene tubing and you place it out by itself. You have an incredibly low response rate to it from dogs,
1: from dogs, yeah. Already trained on on dead cord, already trained on dead cord, right? Yes, you put
0: out dead cord, they knock it out of the park. Yes, you you strip it, you hull it, which I don't recommend people doing without (laughs) the proper guidance or yeah, don't do that. It's not, not, don't do that one at home. So, um. Yeah, the PETN alone, you, you'll, you're going to get an incredibly low response rate to That's very true. However, you take those same group of dogs and you put out virgin polyethylene tubing. They all hit it.
1: And we get, yeah. Or oh, a, a substantial, a non-negligible 90, amount of dogs.
0: 90 plus it. percent are going to end up responding to it. Yes. Yeah, you know, based on based on the numbers. 90 plus percent are going to hit virgin polyethylene tubing and, and walk. Yeah, and I'm well PT, and yes. And that's a, you know, again, it's an integral part, right? So, most definitely, what, yes. You know, we we look at and have to look at that and then take into account what you were just talking about surface area, right? Yes. Everybody wants the dogs to find large hides. Yes. Right? Most people are training, most of the bomb dog teams that I've worked with over the years, you know, consistently they're training with six, eight, 12, 14 inches of, you know, 80 grain, 120 grain deck cord. They got plastic shit on the ends of it. Yeah,
1: and they don't even unplug those ends, and they, yeah,
0: they they got black tape or something covering it up to keep keep everything from falling out. And then you know, in this quest, right, that everybody has to find big, they end up getting access to this entire roll of deck cord.
1: And low they 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 buy the they buy the they don't they don't buy it on the basis of thickness. They buy it on the basis of cheapness. Yeah. So instead of getting a large ball, small amount, like even a foot of a larger ball, they would get half a kilometer of a smaller ball, thinking they got more. And like you said, that's the it's it's one of the main problems we have. Like I would typically advise those that use dead cards to gut it and um before they use it to expose the, the guts. Yeah, which, otherwise you're you know, simply Otherwise they're simply
0: uh, Increase plastics. in the surface area. Yeah. And
1: they would alert on on electrical some brands of electrical wiring and stuff like that. Now, and that is it. Now, we're looking for PTN. So P T N is the parent odor that we uh, we intend to train our dogs on. But when we use like a three foot of low ball um PTN, um sorry, dead cord. Um, that constitutes training odor. Now, how similar is your training odor to your parent odor? Now, there's uh there's similarities, but the overlap is less. So now, how do you increase the 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 that training odor to become more tra- parent odor? You got it. You have to expose the PTN. And like you said, that's some of the problems where it extends to all explosives, and it also extends to narcotics. You know, for explosives, for instance, most of them, like you have the wax paper on the P.T.S. on the TNT. Uh, you have the something on the C4. Um, an explosive ceases to be an explosive once it becomes a training aid. Because at that point, we don't need it for its explosive properties anymore. We need it for its odor, you know. However, we keep them all in bunkers and bake out the essentials of what we need. As a training aid, as an explosive, yeah, they belong in the bunker, but, as a training aid, hell no, because we're just putting everything in an oven and let the odors interact with each other when we should be trying to develop refrigerated bunkers, which should be easy to do. You just make sure the compressors and stuff like that is just a distance away from the from the from the bunker itself, you know, and if we've done that in the past we probably would still have dynamite nitro dynamite dynamite within our bunkers today now we don't we call water gel dynamite the dynamite has evolved whereas instead of it instead of it to, I mean we used to call it water gel now we call it ammon ammonal ammonol and all these funny names uh, so that we can ammonal dynamite so that we could still tick the name for dynamite that we've trained on dynamite when we actually haven't trained on dynamite according to Nobel. You know, so, um yes, and um, we also have it with narcotics whereby we have pure cocaine. It's pure. It's 100% pure. It's parent odor. But then you put that in a plastic bag in order to contain it and you seal the bag so as not to lose it. So now the odor you now now depending on is odor coming through a plastic bag when plastics filter odor components then of course what you got then is training odor not parent odor um i always say training odor is parent odor plus containment when you add when you contain parent odor a, a material put in a container the, 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 the combination of that is what we call training odor. But a lot of people do not really give the target material that much respect in order to know whether there might be contradictions uh, when, you, when you place the target material inside a containment. You know. And I believe a lot of the problems of those using real target materials as odor producers is their containers, if you use a if you put in a metal, it's going to change your odor. If you put it in a plastic, it's going to change your odor. You talk
0: about putting it in metal and that changing the odor. Um I think not to
1: cut you off but it brings up a good point <laughs> when we look at Nort. Yeah, oh yes, the Nort. For over a decade I've been saying that the Nort is a test. I mean, it's 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 a good test to have. However, the containment messes up the odor, you know, and that's why it seems so difficult. That's why not a lot of people pass the knot test. And for those that trained in a box and then without training in a metal and they go for knot tests, they fail. Um, over the years, people have found out that the knot test is difficult, but they found a way around it. And which way is this? They train in cans. Train for it, yeah. Yeah, you train for it. You got to train in a can to pass a can test. Why? Because the odor is different. Metals are catalysts. The same technologies were used in cars. A catalytic converter is just metals put together that changes odor by passing through it. Um, so by the time, I mean, so, so so quickly that by the time carbon monoxide comes out of the engine and just passes through it, it turns to carbon dioxide to a high level of efficiency. You know, so, um, um, yeah, putting things in metal containments uh, metal containers will change the odor. I've heard a few scientists say um, this is not true. But I, as an organic chemist, I'm saying it is true. Show me proof that what I'm saying is not true. We have the proof, and we've tested some explosives, put them in containers. We have a lot of data on these things. But, um, I mean, we've generated data f- for over 20 years at a time when odor was not even considered real. But now a lot of scientists are now working on it now, and I'm excited because now they'll be able to validate what we've been saying um, for so many years. But some things don't need scientific validation. Your dogs have already been telling you this for years too. I mean, a dog has to stick his nose in the can in order to find elements of the odor that's not been catalyzed before it sits. That's why a lot of dogs are smart enough to know that they got to dig their nose in it. And I remember back in the days when I used to attend knot tests, some dogs would actually stick their nose in so deep that they hurt their noses. Their noses get raw and stuff by the sides. I've seen that before because they're trying to dig their nose in, dig their nose in um, into the can. Um, I, I love the knot test for what it stands for. But the way they, they, they the test is set up, um, the containment used for the test, um, actually brings out a scent signature that is different from the old that, than the scent signature that they should be um, um, certifying their dogs on. Okay, I,
0: would, would you say that training and practicing with cans consistently to pass a test similar to Norton, because there's other organizations that do a very similar test, you know, would you say that training consistently and practicing for that would likely create operational inefficiencies
1: well if you train consistently on that what you would get is a half-baked mind detection dog because um um, the odor that's generated is very similar to the odor generated by mines that's why it hasn't been easy to just make a bomb dog a mind dog and i remember we had a lot of mind dog programs out there the one i recollect very very vividly because i used to go down there was the one at fort Leonard Wood. You know, um, um, so, yeah, you cannot make a bomb dog a mine dog for the same reason, because mines are in the soil buried, and the soil min- the soil is mineral. you know, so by the time the odor comes out of the soil, it's been catalyzed by metals. The sense signature would depend on the metal quantity of the metal quality, the kind of the metal composition of that soil. So burying it in the desert would bring us different scent signature than burying it in, a, in, a, in, in, in the tropics where the, the, the soil is um, humus, you know, loamy soil, humus soil, rather than, than a sandy um, soil. So all these things matter. But we can only consider these things when we, when we understand that odor is our real, not the material. And a lot of the problems we've been having with quantifying training aids and dogs making mistakes is not a dog's mistake. But we don't even know what we're doing ourselves. And if we don't know, we would only keep on assuming, oh, the dog's doing that. Oh, the dog rises down. Oh, the goes up. Oh, the goes to the part of least something. It's just, just like things we don't see. Um We can have many, many definitions. That's why they're... We don't see God. We don't see Jesus. That's why there are so many pastors with so many definitions of God, with so many definitions of Jesus, because it seems for us humans, that's what we do when we can't see something. We can see the material, so we believe in the material. We cannot see the odor. So we have a lot of perceptions about this odor, but we don't go to test and investigate and know what these odors are. Um, It's time. For, for, for there to be a, 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 a look at a, a, a serious look at odor, maybe the scientists should help do that, do that, and then they should then translate. They should translate what they've learned to practitioners. We have a lot of work to do as scientists, because I've always believed our job is not just to mingle around you and feel PhD ish you know, <laughs> <laughs> phd Um I mean, I've, I've graduated many PhDs in my time and I used to warn my kids, my academic children, I tell them, a PhD is a beginning, not an end. A PhD is just proof that you've undergone an apprenticeship, that you've done some training and learned some tools that could help you decipher nature. It doesn't mean you've done anything. It means you're, you should be capable of doing something. So when a PhD comes to a practitioner, you should, be, you should be telling the practitioner what you've done to help them get better. Not telling them stories that doesn't help them at all. You know, my charge was to make training aids for, for, for practitioners, not to tell them what doesn't work, but to get them what works you know I, I see a lot of um scientists out there telling practitioners what to do however no matter what i say or any other scientist tells a practitioner is nothing but an opinion until it's been validated by the practitioners themselves practice validates when the outcomes of that practice is consistent and repeatable and by anyone ordinarily skilled in the art, not an expert, but even a novice that could follow procedure should still have the same consequences, results, that as an expert. Then, you can now turn back to the scientist and say you are right. But not just believe a scientist or believe me because I got a PhD. It means... I should have some capabilities. Not that I know anything whatsoever. I have multiple PhDs, but in your world, I just came from Nipopo School two weeks ago. I had to learn that the PhD that doesn't mean automatically I know Nipopo, or oh, I know I know I, I, I'm, or, or I know or I know the quadrants of behavioral science like you practitioners know. So how can I be telling you stuff about your world, when I don't, when I've not gone through structured training in your world, you know? So that's how it is. We should be, you should be asking us to solve problems for you, and we should be coming back with solutions to such problems, you know. And uh, I don't particularly see that, but that's what we need to do to to make practitioners know more about what we should really be looking for in scent detection. I'm very passionate about scent detection because I've dedicated two decades of my life to it and we've learned a lot to it and I do not know. You've been trying to do it and um, I've been trying to do it to, to make practitioners understand that odor is what it is. It doesn't matter what kind of materials you're using, whether it is chemically formulated or whether you're using target materials as odor producers, but it's odor producers. What we call training aids now are nothing but odor producers. And um, (laughs) it don't matter. The question is how well do they produce odor? That is it. And that is something that people need to be very, very, very... That's the questions they should ask. Those are the questions practitioners should ask. Ask us scientists if we say we don't know. Tell us to go back to where we fucking came from, go get it done, <laughs> figure and, come it out. Back and figure it out and come back. Why are we hanging around when we don't know shit? I mean, w- w- that's not our job. We're scientists. Go do your work. Come back to us. We will try it out to see if you're right or wrong. And if you're right, we'll all celebrate together. If you're wrong, like I used to tell my students, if you do a thousand things and you don't get it, you don't get what you're supposed to get, You could write a thesis on a thousand ways to do it that you wouldn't get it. So whatever science you do, it's always information. Tell practitioners ways in which they wouldn't get it. Tell practitioners ways in which they would get it. You know, but don't come to practitioners, blah, 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 and then end up with more work needs to be done. So why have we had this conversation? Why did you call me into a conference to tell me more work needs to be done did i have to pay money for this you could have told me this in a phone conversation but if when you've solved my problem that's what i want to know and i want to know how you did it how it was done and really i'm the one as a practitioner that would tell you scientists that you've solved my problem you cannot tell me you've solved my problem without my canine partner saying yes daddy yes mommy this scientist has solved my problem so there are ways in which scientists react um, get things done but um, there's only one way to getting things successfully done and that is by actually doing your science presenting it to a practitioner and let the practitioner with no bias whatsoever judge what you've presented and then come back to you and tell you whether you're right or wrong and if you're right, then you can go back to scientists and say, you're right. That's the kind of science I want to do, and that's the kind of science we do. You know, we don't publish right now because who does, who, who does publications work for? Only my peers. I tell the scientific community what I've done, so what? How does that translate to practitioners? You know, uh, they will, they, they, most of them wouldn't read the paper. They would just respect me because I'd published I mean, how does that make their lives better if I say it's them I'm working for? So, brother, um, it's uh, it, I think we scientists, uh, we need to rethink and readdress uh, our, our job within this community that we belong in. We're not practitioners. We're scientists. We're here to help practitioners, here to tell them how to make their jobs better, here to tell them the truth, I don't care if anybody likes me or not. If I save your life, I've, I'm, I've been paid. Whether you like me or not, I don't give a damn, you know. But I'ma do my best to save your life so that you 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 wouldn't end up like those that have made me cry by not being here no more back in the days, you know. There are different, there are different, there are two different kinds of maybe scientists out there right now. Um, those of us that were there at 9 when 911 happened uh, we answered a call uh, i personally i was um, riddled with anger riddled with pain riddled with hatred hatred for uh, some particular nations hardcore nat- hatred that i would probably be rather be given a gun than um than being in the lab you know um but um uh, maybe after 12 years later the crop coming in, they, they haven't been through what we've been through back in the days. So maybe the way they see the community is totally different. People don't die being um, 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 bomb dog team members like they used to back in the days. You know, two thousand and two, 2002, 2006, people were dying hundreds every day. You know, nobody dies that much anymore. So I think we we've, we've become a little bit complacent in um, what what we're doing, and um, we seem not to care about time, because twenty years I've been at it, and we've done a few, you know. But still, I don't think we've delivered to the community um, what we need to deliver, which is the truth, the truth about training aids, the truth about odor you know, which we've been saying for years, even though people didn't like us for it, they've called us names pseudo this, pseudo that, because the definition of real, we were trying to to profess or talk about, is different from the definition, the community definition of real. And I think we're the only scientists that sticking by our grounds and defining things the way they're defined, even though people buy less of our products because they say it's not real, but we've never tried to, change and adapt to what they need no this is what you think you need but this is what we know you need and that's why we've been consistent persistent and we've we've addressed all challenges human challenges we've never had a challenge with dogs Mm -hmm. we've never known we've never known we've never known of a dog that was imprinted on send logics and never certified first time anywhere in the world so we don't have problems with dogs at all. We just have conversational um, debates or uh, challenges or insults, you know, from um, from humans.
0: Yeah, I think there's a lot of room for information sharing. Um, I, I, I listen to a lot of talks. A lot of people speak, uh, go to a lot of classes. You and I have, yeah. as, as, as you mentioned, we've we've worked before. I've heard your talks on several different continents, (laughs) (laughs) yes. lots of different time zones. I've heard it many, many times. And, you know, I think there is a ton of room for for information sharing in this particular community. I think a couple things happen. One, uh, people come into it with this completely closed-off mind, and those are really hard to reach. And then um, I think part of it, too, is certain people feel like all the information should be top-down. You know, Um, we're going to – feed you this information, and you should... Uh, you, should you should gobble should, it up. Yeah, you should without gobble it up because of who I am, right? Yeah. Or what I say, or who I... Yeah. You know. and, and, and
1: if your dog ain't doing what I said it should do, then you should make your dog do what I said it should do. Because I am right, not yeah. your dog. Yeah, and that's... Because I'm a PhD. <laughs> yeah. You better believe it.
0: Well, unfortunately, the dog can't read, uh, can't read those PhDs.
1: No, right? unfortunately not. They can just do what Mother Nature... As get them to do, which is what we are supposed to be deciphering in the first case. Yeah,
0: yeah. A person with a high school education and a person with a PhD—if both of them are holding a tennis ball, a dog's going to like them both equally. So you got that right. Yeah. So we're gonna we're gonna cut this off right now, and um, we want you to hang around for part two. We hope that part one here has been informational for you. We hope you took something away from it. Part two is going to bring us lots of more information. Uh, We're going to talk more about uh, how how courtroom testimony goes. We're going to be talking some odor recognition, certification, all sorts of topics coming up in our second part with Dr. Adebempe here. So be sure to listen up for our next episode. If you like what you're listening to, be sure to check us out on the web, caninerollcall.com. Find us on social media.